All right, good morning, church. That's what I like. I've been flying back and forth to Detroit, working with the black churches up there, and they have some talk back, so I'm a little used to that. So that's good. It's a good start this morning. Well, welcome if you're new. My name's Kevin. I'm your lead pastor. So glad you're with us. And this morning I'm excited because we are going to look at one of the most critical events in all of human history. In fact, this morning's event is part of what is called the Power Five. If you don't know what the power five is, when you look at the entire history of the world, the most important events that have ever happened, the power five moments are the incarnation of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the return of Jesus. And so uh, you'll notice a theme there, right? Hopefully you, you picked up on that theme, and you should, because I would argue that all of the world sort of pivots on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like it or not, Jesus Christ has influenced our calendars, and Jesus Christ has influenced our religions and our families and our marriages and our sporting events. It's influenced, he has influenced our judicial system, our money, and more. And the resurrection, what we're going to be looking at this morning, is part of the power five. If you missed Easter, here you go. That's where we're going, okay? And it's not just recorded in one or two of the Gospels. The resurrection is referenced and taught and shown and unpacked in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have four Gospel accounts affirming this resurrected Christ, and that's a big deal. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn to Matthew 28, our final chapter in the book of Matthew. Next week, Yeah, next week, we're finishing. Whether you're here or not, we're done, all right? We're going to finish it. After 18 months, we're going to wrap this up. And I need you to know next week, it's going to be a party. So that's the point. So if you're, you need to come to church ready because we're going to, the band's coming in hot. I'm coming in hot because we're wrapping this thing up. And it's a big deal. This is the longest book our church has ever taught through. And many of you have joined us in every single sermon, either online or in person. And so next week it's going to come to a close. But go ahead and let's start in Matthew 28, verse 1. This is what it says. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And so what Matthew does right here is Matthew gives us sort of a time stamp. So if you remember the timeline, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus start preparing Jesus' body for burial at about 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon. And they had to really hustle. Why? Because the Sabbath begins one hour before sunset. So they don't have much time to get this body off the cross, to get this body to the tomb, Get all the oil and spices and fragrances used to anoint the body and prepare the body. Get him wrapped up, get him sealed up, and then they have to head home to begin to observe the Sabbath. And so on the Sabbath, there's no work. On the Sabbath, there's no travel. You're just supposed to delight and enjoy time with God. And so Jesus is in the tomb Friday night all day Saturday, and then rises from the dead on Sunday morning. 
So what the passage is saying, early Sunday morning, that very, very first Easter morning, after the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene and Mary, affectionately known as the other Mary, shows up. Tell me, how do you get that title, right? <laughs> if you're a friend at school, hi, my name's Mary, and this is the other Mary, right? I, I'm, I'm assuming the reason it's listed this way is so that she doesn't get confused with Mary, the mother of Jesus, because that could be a problem. But uh, I, regardless, the Marys show up at the tomb, and then something happens. Look at verse 2. It says, there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And I don't want to just gloss over this. I really need you to enter into the picture here, because so many times we don't place ourselves in the story. A violent earthquake happens. What would you do right now? in this place this morning, if a violent earthquake happened. Some of y'all using dirty words. That's what's happening, right? <laughs> and so we would duck, right? Or maybe we would run. There would be panic maybe because we don't have a lot of those here. There's not like there's a ton of them there. And it would just, I think it would freak us out. And then when that was over, apparently about the time you get your wits about you, you see angelic holiness descending on this place. And you see this angelic being's clothing is bright, bright white, and his face and features are like lightning. That's a lot, right? And then when he comes and he sits on the rock, it says, but remember, he doesn't sit on the 10-foot rock, remember? It's more like he sits like this, he's kind of like, right? You know, because the rock's not that big. But the reason that's important is when they sit on on a 10-foot rock, they're looking down. Right here, they're looking right eye to eye with you. That'll freak you out a little bit. Angel with lightning features looking you eye to eye. And my thought is, how would you respond to all of this happening right in front of you? You would probably be just like the dudes in verse 4. It says the guards, now these guards that Pilate had placed at the request of the chief priests and elders, it says these guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now, I want to make sure you understand contextually when I say guards, I'm not talking about a mall cop, right? We're not talking about Paul Blart. That's not who, it's not the security guard outside of your condo association checking IDs that can't really do anything. That's not who these guys are. These are Roman soldiers. In fact, this is multiple Roman soldiers standing there. They're battle-hardened. They are battle-tested, battle-ready warriors who have seen the stresses of war, who have experienced all of the violence in all of the incredible situations that war brings. And while guarding a dead man's tomb... They get scared to death because they've never seen anything like this massive earthquake. They're scared to death because they've never seen anything like this angel. They've never seen anything like a stone being rolled aside, untouched by human hands. That's a moment. That's a moment worth writing about in all four Gospels. And then it says, the angel speaks. And my thought was, how long did the angel like just stand there 
and let this whole thing just play out and let the silence, you know, it's just quiet and the angel's just looking at him. I wonder how long the, these stunned looks lasted until the angel finally speaks. But look at what he says in verse 5. It says, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. Yeah, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the places or the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. So here's how this rolls out. The ladies, remember, they are showing up at the tomb bringing uh, spices and fragrances and oils that they had purchased on Friday. Why did they purchase them? Because they were standing there watching the guys do it. And they're like, yeah, okay, we're going to come back and just do it right after this Sabbath thing's over. We'll come back. So they roll up ready to do that. And to their surprise, an earthquake happens, an angel shows up, the stone is rolled away from them, and the angel tells them that Jesus is risen. He is not here, just as he said. And my thought was, how many emotions went through those ladies' body, like that fast? It's like emotional whiplash. What do you do here? They, they are seeing and they are hearing something that they have never seen or heard before. They don't have a category for any of this. And so it says they take off running with fear and joy at the same time. Now, I think we understand why they run in fear, because I think I might join them in that. But the question is, why joy? Well, it's joy because their hearts are jumping as their minds are remembering what Jesus has said, and it's all coming back. It's all beginning to become clear. Jesus has done it. He has actually risen from the dead. It's not like some alliteration or some allegory or some metaphor. No, no, he literally has done it. And if you remember Mark's account of this moment, it says that the angel told the ladies to go back and tell the disciples and Peter. Prior to that moment in your Bible, every time, it's always Peter and the disciples. But now it's the disciples and Peter because P Peter's wrecked. Peter's denial of Jesus, not once, but three times now, Peter's dark night of the soul has wrecked him. And now these ladies have the privilege and the joy to go back to Peter and go, Peter, it's not over. Peter, it's not over. We thought it was over. It's not. And so they're running. And can you imagine what they're thinking? Can you imagine what's running through these, these ladies' heads as they're taking off to head back to this, to this room where the disciples are? But what's interesting is, look at verse 8. It says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Of course they did. Because when you're in the presence of a resurrected king, 
what else are you going to do? What else could you say? Verse 10, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So apparently, I would imagine, their minds are running so quickly with so much to say that they need to be reminded again and don't forget to tell them to go to Galilee. Tell them the whole resurrection thing, super important, but make sure you also instruct them to go to Galilee. And so these ladies, they make it back and they roll up here to Peter and the boys. And most of you know what happens next because it's talked about in John chapter 20. When Peter hears this message, good old Peter takes off running. He bolts out the door. He doesn't stop and go, hey guys, what do you think we should do? Hey guys, let's circle up and, and come up with some sort of plan. No, no. Peter just takes off running. Zero to 60 in seconds. But it also says in John 20 that John takes off too. So now we have a foot race, right, between John, the young whippersnapper, and Peter, the old diesel truck, right? That's what's happening. They're headed that way. And while John wins the foot race, he's, he's timid when he arrives. But honestly, compared to Peter, isn't everybody timid? <laughs> I mean, everybody's timid compared to Peter when I read about Peter. And so sure enough, when this old diesel truck arrives, he may have gotten outrun, but he doesn't stop at the door. He bolts right in, probably throwing a bow at John. You know, gets past him, gets right on in there, but then John follows him in. And we read about that in John chapter 20, verse 8. It says, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. See, they're, they're still trying to put the pieces together. Because if we can... Be candid for, here for a second. Think about it. A resurrected Christ. That's not normal, right? That's not a normal thing. That's a pretty incredible thing. And they're like, um, logically speaking here for a second, um, what happened? Like, how did that happen? They didn't quite understand it yet. And I'd say that's quite normal, don't you think? Their brains just can't figure this out yet. In fact, starting in verse 10, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're going to record 11 different appearances to people and groups of people over the next 40 days. And that doesn't even take into account Jesus' appearances to Paul. And so he appears to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary here. He appears to Peter and to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appears to 10 of the disciples without Thomas, which that had to be a bummer, right? Because if you're Thomas, you're like, oh, I was out getting food and y'all are meeting Jesus, you know? And so he says, but I'm not going to believe unless I get to stick my finger in and touch those sides. And so what does Jesus do? He shows up again and lets him do it. He appears to Peter and the disciples again while they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. He appears to 500 people, men and women, according to 1 Corinthians 15. He appears to James, his brother, which how did that interaction go? Hey, bro, what's up? You know, like, that'd be weird. And, and then he, again, he appears to the apostles in Acts chapter 1 as he is ascending, and they're all staring as he disappears. And Jesus appears to Paul and 
Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears again in Acts chapter 18 as Paul's sort of banging away in Corinth and Jesus just shows up to affirm him. And some of you are like, Kevin, why do I need to know this? Because too many people in the church today think Jesus just showed up one time, maybe two times, talked to two people and that's it. No, no, no. He didn't appear to just one or two people. Jesus appears to all sorts of people all over the place about every other day or so for 40 days. That's a lot because he is totally affirming the fact, not theory, the fact of his resurrection. But as you can imagine, the religious leaders are all out of whack. They have a serious problem now because the only thing worse than having a false Messiah is having a came-back-to-life resurrected Messiah, right? You cannot have that. So you'll notice in verse 11, the spin is on. It says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Four weeks ago, I was in Jerusalem. This story is still being told this very day. The Jews are still perpetuating this story. The spin is still on. They still do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so the religious leaders here, they simply buy him off. Look, here's some money. Here's some, here's some hush money. Just keep quiet. This never, this never happened. There's nothing to see here. Keep moving. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Right? That's what's happening. And oh, by the way, if you think about the governor, if the governor asks any questions, we'll take care of the governor. Okay? We've got the governor. And the thought becomes, why would the governor care? Why would any of this concern the governor? Remember, these aren't mall cops. These are professional Roman soldiers. And if these battle-hardened, battle-ready, battle-tested soldiers fell asleep on the job after being given a direct order from Pilate himself to guard the tomb, and they let these disciples, these backwood fishermen, these uneducated country boys, come up and steal the body of Jesus, these soldiers would have been put to death. They would have been killed. See, this cover-up is no small thing because people's lives are, are at risk. These soldiers could be killed for this. And if you think about it, this really is a pretty absurd claim. In fact, all of the theories that people have, have uh, perpetuated or propagated about this whole resurrection, both now and in the past, they've been absurd. The stolen body theory is still being talked about today. This theory assumes that a bunch of guys who abandoned Jesus and fled the first sight of trouble, who were gathered upstairs in a room in fear, somehow became courageous and bold, and they got organized enough that they could act like SEAL Team 6 
right? They could sort of sneak into this area where there are paid professional guards who are supposedly sleeping, which of course they would never do, and that they rolled away the stone without waking any of the guards, and they carried Jesus away. Or even better yet, others say this, the way the theory goes is they came in and these same guys overpowered the Roman soldiers, right? And they unwrapped the body. They removed all 125 pounds of fragrances and oils and spices. They folded up all the grave sheets, placed them neatly at the foot of the stone where he was laid, and they snuck that dead body out, put the stone back in place. Nobody saw anything. Is that likely? Okay, four of you said no, because the rest of you, I guess you're still wondering. There's no way that's likely. The second theory that's still um, being talked about today is something called the swoon theory. And the theory simply says that Jesus wasn't really dead. So nope, he just sort of passed out. When he was on the cross, he wasn't dead. He was just sort of in some sort of shock and he looked dead. And then he awakened a couple days later. He removed the stone himself from the inside, overpowered the guards, or maybe snuck by the guards, then walked seven miles on the road to Emmaus where he met two disciples after having no food and no water for two days after being flogged and beaten. Is that likely? Yeah, okay, good. At least you don't agree with that one because that's not likely. In fact, one of the big problems is that the text clearly states that Pilate had the body checked to see if Jesus was dead. He called the guy whose job, he was a professional killer. He called that guy and said, is he dead? And the guy's like, yep, he's dead. So clearly he had this checked out. And so then that's why Pilate releases the body. And think about it, after all the beatings, all the hours of flogging, how is Jesus walking out of that tomb? Because if you think back, I don't know if you remember the story of Lazarus, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Well, when he comes out in John chapter 11, it says he's sort of walking like this. Why? Because he's wrapped like a mummy. And so it says that they had to help strip those grave cloths off and had to get all of that, all of those fragrances and oil and spices and myrrh off of his body because he couldn't move. And so is any of this likely? No. The third theory that's still out there is what's something called the hallucination theory. This theory assumes that the followers of Jesus were so overwhelmed with grief that they wished the appearances of Jesus to be a reality. That, that what they saw wasn't real, but what it was was a, was a hallucination. And is that likely? Because like Jesus ate with them, because that'd be weird, right, if he's just a hallucination, and he appears to 500 people in a shot. They touched him and more. That's not a hallucination. That's a resurrected king. The fourth theory that's still out there is something called the wrong tomb theory. This theory is that the ladies, when they showed up at the tomb, they went to the wrong tomb. They didn't check things out. Google, Google Maps was down. I don't know what happened. But apparently they went to the wrong tomb. And the tomb that they went to was empty. And when they saw the empty tomb, they just surmised that Jesus has risen from the dead. And I thought, so is that likely? No. Because I'm pretty sure at least Joseph knew where his family tomb was. 
pretty confident. And what they could have done is they could have gotten there pretty quickly. Just go to Joseph and say, hey, Joseph, I forgot. I know it's only 48 hours ago, but where is that tomb? And he, he could have taken them to the tomb and said, my tomb is right there. There's Jesus. There's his body. There it is. But maybe Joseph is in on it. You know, let's say he, he switched sides at the last second. I want you to keep in mind that the Marys followed Joseph and Nicodemus 48 hours ago. They stood there and watched the guys not get it right. They knew exactly where they were going. They didn't need anybody to show them. The fifth theory that's still out there is called the never buried theory. This theory is that Jesus was never buried. Instead, he was thrown into a common grave. They actually didn't put him in a tomb. They just buried one big grave and they put the, the two other criminals that were hanging with them, all three of them that got thrown into a common grave. And the thought is, is that likely? Well, no, because we have scriptural accounts, but we also have historical accounts from the Romans and from Jewish religious leaders that Jesus was buried and the grave was secured and the grave was guarded by Roman soldiers. You can find that outside of biblical texts. Church, I think we only have one solution left. That Jesus actually rose from the dead just as he had foretold four separate times in Matthew's gospel alone. That Jesus said, after three days, I will rise from the dead. He said it over and over and over again, and that is what he did. And the evidence is very, very strong. We have historical evidence and we have a confirming plurality of voices. But not only that, Jerusalem is, in that day was not a very large city. And during the festival, sure, it swelled, but it's not a very large city. And, and everybody in that city sort of knew everybody else's business. I think in St. Petersburg, sometimes we feel the same way, right? Like we're a big city, but other times we're like, how does everybody know my business? Like, but this is substantially smaller than St. Petersburg. And Jesus was a very, very high profile figure. And many people in the community were beginning to believe that Jesus is actually who he said he was, that he is the savior of the world. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, in a small town like that, someone would have ratted somebody out. Someone said, no, you know what they did? They, they snuck the body out. It's in Joe's basement. Just go over there, walk downstairs, you'll see it. You know, you can, that's where it is. They would have blown this story wide open. And if you think about it also, if you're the disciples, right, and you're making up a story, why would the early church make the very first witnesses women? Now, we've come a long way regarding women in our culture, but in that culture, women did not have rights. Women could virtually own no property. They, they could not testify in court. And so if the early followers of Jesus were going to make up a fabricated story of a resurrected Christ, you would not make your first two witnesses to see it the Marys. You wouldn't do it. You would not make the first witnesses women because that would immediately blow the credibility of your story. And if your story, this resurrection, is fabricated, it's hard to believe that the early church would record and write it down that someone actually doubted. 
Who writes that down? If you're making up a lie, who writes down? You know what? Some of us in the inner circle, we thought it was all a hoax too. You know, you, you don't write that stuff down. You won't write down that some of the people closest didn't believe, and that's exactly what they did. And what's even crazier is that after that first Easter morning, the entire faith community moved their time of worship from the Sabbath on Saturday to the Sabbath on Sunday in honor of the resurrection. Do you want to know why we do Sunday and they do Saturday? We moved it because of the resurrection. The early church said it's that important to us. You don't move your day of worship for a lie. So something of incredible significance happened, and word began to spread that it happened, and it changed the very day that the early church worshiped. And really, if you think about it, if you want to kill a rumor, how do you do it? Just produce the body of Jesus. Like, that's it. All they had to do was like, hey, guys, Joseph's tomb's right there. Jesus isn't in it. Uh, this whole thing's a lie, or here's the body. We, we stole it, or whatever you want to do. Just produce the body. But they couldn't do it. Why? Because Jesus wasn't there. He has risen from the dead. And besides, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how do you explain just Peter's transformation, right? The Peter you read about pre-cross to Peter post-tomb. He's a completely different cat. I mean, he is way different. And not only him, all sorts of groups of people, countless people went from faithless to faithful. They went from selfish to selfless. They went from timid to bold. They went from me to we. And if the resurrection is a lie, how do you explain this sort of radical commitment that each of these early followers of Jesus had to a lie? Stephen was stoned to death knowing he was dying for a lie. Who's going to stand in the bottom of a pit and give hundreds of people rocks and say, I know it's a lie, kill me for it. Throw rocks at me until I'm dead. Who's doing that? Or what about Matthew was run through with the sword in Ethiopia, knowing he was dying for a lie? Mark was drugged through the streets of Alexandria for a lie. Luke was hung from an olive tree in Greece for a lie. James the Greater was stabbed and beheaded in Jerusalem for a lie. James the Less, which is an interesting, if you, he's James the Greater and I'm James the Less, that's a terrible name. But James the Less was thrown off the pinnacle of the highest point of the temple. And when he hit the ground, apparently he didn't die. And they beat him to death with clubs for a lie. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was run through with a spear in the East Indies. Matthias was stoned and then beaten. Barnabas was stoned to death. Jude was shot with arrows until he died for a lie. Paul was tortured and beheaded in Rome and more. And they all did it knowing it was a lie. All of these men and more died in order to propagate a fabricated story of an empty tomb. See, lots of people will die for what they believe. But nobody dies for what they know to be a lie. 
countless individuals, each enduring tremendous suffering, fully convinced in what they saw, fully assured in what they experienced, fully confident in what they themselves had actually witnessed. So the question has to become is, who cares about the resurrection? Who cares? Why would anyone waste any amount of time attacking the resurrection? Why challenge it? Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. That means I'm a liar. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Here's what Paul's saying. If you can disprove the resurrection, this whole thing we're doing, it's a joke. This whole faith thing is a joke. If Jesus' body can be found, we should all be pitied because this whole thing is in vain. The world should pity us. But it's not. The resurrection affirms the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. Romans chapter 6 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have and live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. It not only transforms me, it, it connects and confirms me to the deity of Jesus. It affirms Jesus paying the penalty for my sins on a cross. It literally affirms my salvation. It's Romans 10. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The resurrection is critical to our faith. It's, it's a recognition of the power five, the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the ultimate return of Christ. And so as we close, I want to ask you the same question that Luke asks, or, or we see asked by the angel in Luke 24. Because the angel looks at the women in Luke 24 and says, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Like there is such truth in that. There's such assurance in that, that, that the Jesus we are seeking is not here. He has risen from the dead. And you know what I found interesting when Pastor Dan and I were in Israel, they have two sites that they think the tomb, where, where the garden tomb is. 
And they want you to visit both. And the pessimistic pastor in me says, y'all just want me to pay the entrance fees and all the money. But let's just say they don't know. And so you go to one and they show you the stone and they show you the tomb. And you go to the other one, they show you a stone and they show you a tomb. And they go back and forth and they always debate about which one is the real side. Everybody there is wanting to know where it happened. And I do get that on some level. But the real truth is where it happened doesn't matter. Because it's not where it happened, it's what happened and why it happened. Because pick tomb A or pick tomb B, I don't care. It doesn't matter. He is not there. He is risen. So pick your tomb. I don't care. Take pictures of me at both. I don't care. He is not there. Church Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, that's why we say amen. That's why we say hallelujah. Right, right. And, and that's totally why we look and we say, what a savior. Because as we look at the cross, it's easy to think that the cross is where it ended. But the cross isn't where it ended. The grave isn't where it ended. He has conquered the grave. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And he has conquered death. He is risen. Amen. Yeah. And because he's risen, he calls us to himself. And by the power of the resurrection, he invites us into that same new life that God through the power, through, through the power of the resurrected Christ. Why is the resurrection so critical? Because our faith hinges on it. No other world religion, no other belief system has an empty tomb. We do. And just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, we are to be pitied most of all. But the good news is this, church. They have been trying for century after century after century after century. From the very moment this all started in Matthew 28, where the religious leaders try to spin a narrative, and they've tried all the way to today, they have tried to dis prove the resurrection. But church, he is not there. He is risen. He is risen indeed.